Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Just the other day, we had the fiscal update, the federal fiscal update. And in an interview with us on the 15th of November, Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux said at the time, he was remaining unaware of what the Trudeau government plans on doing, whether this means reducing the federal deficit to a more sustainable level, whether it aims to balance the budget within a certain time horizon, or whether the government is relatively comfortable with a high level of spending and deficit for a few additional years. I'm quoting the uh, PBO directly. Uh, Mr. Giroux also expressed concern about the Trudeau government's decision to spend in secret. So I'm curious whether the parliamentary budget officer's Concerns were dealt with satisfactorily by the fiscal update of a few days ago, so why don't we ask him? Because he's, he's really one of our favorite guests on this show. Uh, Monsieur Yves Giroux joins us. You have a lot of fans. I'm glad to hear that. I didn't know that. You do. I, I receive emails all the time asking me to invite you back. And there are also people who are very interested in the various contests you and I have going. <laughs> Yeah, the beer contest. <laughs> the beer contest being one of them, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we can maybe get into that a little later, but uh, the most important issues here are the finances of the government and how you assess what's going on. Did that uh, fiscal update provide you with satisfaction? Did, were you able to get to the end of it? And congratulations if you, if you did. Uh, and did you find that the answers that you needed were there for you? Well... I found most of the answers in the fiscal update, and credit where credit is due, the government provided five-year forecasts of its spending, its revenues, as well as its deficit. And we see based on that fiscal update that the minister tabled last week now, that the deficit is scheduled to go from close to $400 billion to something that's much more manageable, about $25 billion. So kudos to the government for being clear and transparent about its five-year fiscal horizon. And that's, I think that's a real plus for Canadians. There's light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to COVID because of the vaccine, but there's also light at the end of the deficit tunnel, I think because of the fiscal update and its projections that the deficit could go to a much lower level of about $25 billion by 2025-26. So that may seem like a long time. It's five years from now. But there is hope that things could, well, will be better eventually. Yeah. So uh, how would you assess the current finances of, of Canada? What, what shape are we in well, we are in a relative, and the word here is relative, in a relative good shape because we started the pandemic from a position of relative strength, certainly at the federal level, with a debt that's relative, that was relatively small compared to the size of the economy, which is better than most other G7 countries and in a relatively good position compared to other advanced economies that are not necessarily in the G7, the, the most, the biggest economies. But with the, the investments or spending, depending how you see that, related to COVID, the situation has taken a very sharp turn. So we went from 31% 
the size of the debt compared to the GDP to upwards of 50% this year and rising to at least 53% next year. So we went from one of the best countries uh, of, with respect to our fiscal situation to getting much closer to the average of G7 countries. So we're still in a relatively good position, but we clearly could not sustain a deficit of $400 billion or close to that level for many more years. So it's a, it's a good thing that the government released an update that would see the deficit gradually decline over the next couple of years. So it's up to them to uh, to establish the schedule and then stay with it. I'm just uh, looking at a story that came out of the CBC this morning. Uh, Ottawa made $240 billion in payments and transfers to individuals, businesses, organizations, and government entities between the beginning of the lockdown on March 13th and November 20. That eight-month spending spree has seen funds course through more than 100 measures and programs, many of them created from scratch. And while the federal government has readily disclosed its overall numbers and spending envelopes, few details are being provided about who has received the payments and in what amounts, information that is vital if taxpayers are to know how their money is being spent. When you and I last talked, that was one of the issues that you had. Uh, you, were, you weren't aware, you weren't being told, it wasn't being shared with Parliament where the money was being spent. Is that still the case? Well, that's still the case. So the government in its update indicated what it expects will be the total amount to be spent this fiscal year, well, last fiscal year, this fiscal year, and next on COVID-related measures, and even into the, the next couple of years. But the bulk of it will be this year and next. So the government has been clear that in total it plans on spending that much money on COVID-related measures. What we don't know is how much has been spent to date. So today, as of December 6, we don't know how much has been paid out in CERB or in, well, we, we know for a couple of big signature programs, CERB, the recovery benefits, but the smaller programs, for example, the wage subsidy and so on, we don't have a clear picture as of today or yesterday or Friday how much had been spent. And the government typically does not provide a picture of how much has been sent, spent sorry, as of a certain date on all of these COVID-related programs. It probably knows, but given that there are, there's a hundred program or so, it probably is quite difficult to track all the spending of all these programs in real time. But still, the government was able to do that up till August 6, early August. It was providing every two weeks a, a relatively up-to-date picture of how much had been spent on COVID measures up until October or August 6, sorry, uh, to the Finance Committee of the House of Commons every two weeks. Uh, with the House being prorogued in August, it stopped doing that, and it has not resumed providing these regular updates to parliamentarians and to Canadians. So the best that we have, the best information we have, is the up-to-date information for some of the big signature programs, but for the vast majority of the remainder of the 100 or so programs, we don't know how much has been spent to date. We just okay, can, can just rely on the estimate. Um, let, me, let me ask you this. Does the federal government have the responsibility, because we talk about not, not knowing where the money's going, does the federal government, any, any one of them, do they have responsibility at all to report to you uh, their spending, or do you have to be a detective, or do they report to the House, and then you work with those numbers? 
Well, it can be can be either of these. So I can ask the government for information that's within the control of any federal institution, which I do. Uh, but given that there's over 100 programs, it's difficult to collect all that information and provide it every second week like the government used to do. But I do that, and I collect information on a regular basis from departments. And we update our cost estimates. It's available on our website where we provide a cost estimate and as current as possible a tally of COVID-19 measures that the government has announced and implemented. So it's available. The government does not have formally to report regularly except through its budget or its fiscal update as it did and at the end of the calendar year when it provides the uh, public accounts. But the public accounts for last year were just released uh, with the update, so November 30th, the books that were closed in March. So there's a lag there. Yeah, I, I'm still concerned about this um lack of transparency on on spending and that really i i really would like to know and i think it doesn't matter whether it's a liberal government a conservative government ndp government whoever uh, it would be incumbent on a government particularly at a time like this to report spending in detail to the people of canada is that a concern for you and if there are issues that that trouble you and you talked to us last time about being able to go to bed and go to sleep comfortably and and relaxed as opposed to worrying about who's spending the money and where they're spending it is that lack of transparency a concern to you and what other concerns do you have currently well it's a concern because we're talking about dozens of billions of dollars on a monthly basis if not on a weekly basis so the government is supporting on the recovery benefits of the successor to serve pretty much in real time. But for the other big programs, for example, all the billions of dollars in loans that it's provided to small and medium and large businesses, there's no real reporting in real time, at least, uh, of that. So it's potentially like dozens of billions of dollars that the Crown is on the hook for if these businesses go under. So that's the lack of transparency on the real-time spending is worrying me, especially when parliamentarians are being asked and will soon be asked to vote on enhancements to these programs, That some of which were announced in the fiscal update last Monday. So parliamentarians are being asked to vote on that, but they don't have a clear picture of how much has been spent to date. So that's one concern. The other concern is that in the fiscal update, the government introduced the notion of planned stimulus spending of 70 to $100 billion over three years not known where this will be spent yet, but what the minister has indicated is that the trigger to decide when to stop that stimulus spending will be the state of the labor market. And she's given a few indicators, but some of these indicators are will be on a downward trend. So, for example, if you look at the employment rate and the employment rate, for those who wonder, the employment rate is the proportion of adults who have a job. But with an aging population, the proportion of adults who have a job is anyways on a downward trend because as people get older, they tend to retire. If there are more old people in society, the employment rate will go down. There'll be fewer adults working. So, will be on a downward trend anyways. So to say we'll stop the stimulus when the employment rate returns to the pre-pandemic level means it could never stop if you look only at that measure. 
and the ministers also looked, said that she'd look at the number of hours worked and the unemployment rate. So these were three examples. But the number of hours worked in total could be back to its pre-pandemic level in the first half of 2022, so a little bit more than 18 months from now. But yet, the stimulus spending is scheduled for three years, starting in April. So that could be too much and over too long a period if we are to believe that the minister will use these labor market indicators. So yeah. One other thing that's Yeah, worked. for sure. And, and I have about 30 seconds. Um, when do they run out of borrowing options? Does that happen to governments at all? Uh, it could happen, and we there's no clear trigger. So we would see that when interest rates start to rise on Canadian right. bonds that the government issues. So if we see that Canadian bond rates start rising, but other countries don't experience the same phenomenon, then that would be a clear sign that the the appetite of markets for Canadian government bonds is drying up. So okay. they may be reaching the end of uh, of the borrowing capacity that they have. Okay. So that would be one sign, but there's no okay. clear limit. Dr. Isaac Bogosh was named to the Ontario COVID-19 Vaccine Task Force, which held its first meeting this afternoon. And Dr. Bogosh joins us to speak to the issues, confronting not just the task force, but also speaking to the many faces of the COVID vaccine rollout, from availability to increasing the numbers of Canadians professing to not be interested in being vaccinated and changing their minds and uh, getting, well, I don't want to change your mind. We went through that at the first hour of the show when I read my commentary and we took some phone calls. But let's let's talk with Dr. Bogosh. I'm just going to dig a hole for myself here. And I learned years ago, Dr. Bogosh, when you're in the hole, stop digging. Yeah, I I, I know that feeling. I've been in those holes from time <laughs> to time. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, as you point out, sometimes it's best to stop digging, but uh, sometimes it takes uh that's a little bit longer than uh, other times to realize when you, when to stop. <laughs> I remember speaking with a politician one day, and he said, he started to answer a question. And he got about 30 seconds into it, and he said, that's it. I'm not saying another word. I said, why not? He said, because I just realized the trap you're setting for me. Oh, God. <laughs> and I wasn't well, even setting you know a trap for me. Like with this stuff, there's no traps. Like, this is not politics. This is health. And no, I know. I know. Like, I think we could just have, you know, open, fair, and honest conversations Absolutely. about things like COVID-19 and vaccines and stuff. And, and exactly. uh, you know, we're here to inform and, and there's no, you know, there's no, there's no twist. No. And, and you, I don't know how you fit all the, what you do into a 24 hour day, because now you're on this task force and you had your first meeting today. What can you tell us about what went on? What's, uh, what's it like? What, what's, what's being faced? Well, you know, essentially the whole, the whole goal of the task force is, to really ensure that there's a, a, a rapid and a data-driven and, uh, quite frankly, an equitable distribution of vaccines throughout the province. And, uh, you know, clearly there's going to be some logistical hurdles. We all know about what products are coming through the pipeline and what Health Canada is likely to approve. And we know we're going to have, you know, a little bit of this at first, but then as time goes on, we'll have access to more and more. And, you know, it's not it doesn't take much to scratch the surface and realize like what challenges lie ahead to get, you know, close to 15 million people access to this vaccine. So, you know, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. I think making it a little bit challenging as well is that we should be ready. We have to be ready for this like imminently. Like these, these vaccines are, are knocking at our door. Like they're probably 
they're coming sooner rather than later. So we got to be ready for this. Yeah, I'd like to t- talk to you about that for just a second or in a second. But how much cooperation is there? Is there work between that's taking place, cooperation between the provinces uh, saying, you know, we'll help you here and you help us there. We've identified a challenge here that it, we think that you could could could, uh, could assist with. Is that going on? I, I think so to some extent. A lot of that's certainly well above my pay grade. But I know it, for example, like at the federal level, what's been instrumental was uh, there's been a national committee that really helps prioritize um, who should get vaccinated first. We know that we're going to have a limited supply up front, and then, you know, we'll have more and more vaccines. So who should get this first? And, and you know, obviously the provinces are going to implement that in whatever way they want, but, but it's really helpful to standardize this across the country by identifying, you know, people in long-term care, people over the age of 80, frontline healthcare workers, you know, indigenous populations, like people who are really at greatest risk of getting the infection or having a severe outcome from this infection. And like that kind of coordination is, is extremely helpful. So can you talk to us, please? Because, um, you know, we, I spoke earlier with Daryl Bricker from Ipsos Public Affairs. They do amazing polling for, for global news and they found that 74% of Canadians, that's a big number, 74%. If you can get 74% of Canadians to agree on anything, that's huge. 40% will get you a majority government, close to. Uh, 74% of Canadians believe that the, the vaccines won't be here, won't, won't be rolled out fast enough to head off, um, a surge in the uh, in the uh, in the pandemic oh i agree with that 100 percent. i mean what what do we need we don't need any more data we're in that surge look at us it's it's really really troubling like look at alberta look at parts of ontario saskatchewan winnipeg uh and other parts of manitoba for sure even parts of quebec like our healthcare systems are getting squeezed like it's it's um you know it's it's getting ugly it really is in some places uh and uh and you know we obviously these vaccines can't come soon enough but i mean between now and when there's enough people vaccinated to take the pinch off of our healthcare system that could be you know months away we we really need to get this under control to protect our healthcare system so um let's talk about uh i want to get into that with you as well but i want to stay with vaccines if you don't mind for for just a bit um, are we talking about, and I asked you this once before, and I didn't follow up on it, and I should have. Are we talking about vaccines that are going to be um, effective in, in over a long period of time, that build up antibodies, and they're going to be uh, protect the person who is vaccinated uh, for a year at least? Or do we not know, do we not have enough experience with, with these vaccines yet to be able to predict that? Yeah, it's a great point. We, we don't really have enough experience to predict that. And it's really interesting. We look at what when these vaccine trials actually started. They really started like the first early, early human trials were as early as mid-March. So it was about nine-ish months of, of data uh, going into this, which is pretty good. But of course, we don't have enough data to know how long the protection is going to last. Having said that, we can kind of and I use my words carefully, kind of extrapolate from existing data to predict that it's probably going to be a year or more. But like at the end of the day, you talk, we have to be transparent and there's things we know and there's things we don't know. And this would be one of those things we don't know. Like, I I just don't know how long we'll have immunity for. Will we need boosters? Maybe, maybe not. If we do, when is it going to be? Don't know. Maybe a year, maybe two years. I just don't know. 
Um, so, so what is it that you are particularly focusing on? You And I've asked you this before, and I find it very interesting. When you tell me, or tell all of us, what it is that you are focusing on, you're the infectious diseases specialist, you're in that, in that medical community. Where is your focus, and how is it changing over, how has it changed over the last number of months, and where do you expect it to go in the, in the, in the, in the next couple of months? A couple of things. First is, my, my main concern right now is I'm, I'm very worried about, you know, different parts of different parts of the country and how we're seeing uh, some of these epidemics spiraling out of control. Uh, I'm very concerned about you know, parts of Saskatchewan, parts of Alberta, parts of Ontario, Manitoba, like many parts of the country, B.C. Like there's just a we're not doing a good job. We're not doing a good job. And I'm worried that people are going to sadly get infected, get hospitalized. And, and many are going to succumb to this illness, and we don't. We can prevent that from happening. We can. We know the tools. We know how to do this. This is not new anymore. We're almost a year in. We know how, where who gets infected, where they get infected, how they get infected, and how to prevent it. So that's number one. Number two is clearly focused on the vaccine front and really looking at how can we deploy these vaccines to as many people in as smart a manner as possible to ultimately save lives, uh, and, and, and quite frankly, get the economy back as well. Like, I think these are so closely intertwined. Obviously, there's a healthcare component and a public health component, but there's an economic component. There's a psychological component. I mean, the, the faster these vaccines are rolled out, the sooner we can slide back to normalcy, the sooner we can get back to work, the sooner we can get the economy open up, the sooner we can lift mask wearing and the restrictions that we have on gatherings and open up the borders and travel and go to restaurants and bars and movies again. Like, so there's a lot of good that's going to happen in 2021, but we still have a long way to go to get there. Okay, now I, uh, I, I've spoken with uh, other infectious diseases physicians, and uh, what they've said to me is, and I don't know if this is uh, sort of common thinking, uh, that the before the vaccine actually arrives in massive numbers, and we're talking now, I suppose when we say that, the latter half of 2021, um, that there will be some level of significant herd immunity in our in our Canadian community. Do you subscribe to that? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, we get we we can get immune from two mechanisms, right? The vaccine or recovering from this infection. And despite how bad the numbers are now and the considerable amount of infection there is in the community, natural infection leading to immunity. We're, we're, with regards to that, we're still a long way away from developing any semblance of herd immunity with that. So that would take a lot more infection uh, than we currently have. Uh, the best way to do this, and quite frankly, the fastest way to do this, and the way to do this with the fewest amount of hospitalizations and deaths is through a mass vaccine program. That's what's going to save lives. Like, I know how we're not supposed to say there's no silver bullet. There kind of is a silver bullet. Like, it's, it's a mass vaccine program. That's the silver bullet. Like, that's how you get people back on track out of the hospital back at work healthy safe and even if you get the infection you know with the snippets of data that we have even if you get the infection with the vaccine it appears again got to be careful with my words it appears that people who get the vaccine are less like who get infected are less likely to have a severe infection so like it's a it's a lot of positives associated with this we really need to you know answer people's questions listen to their concerns like meaningfully listen we can't discount people's concerns there's real concerns there we got to listen to these and 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 account for these 
but uh, but we really have to find a way to get as many people vaccinated as possible in this short a period of time. Dr. Bogosh, one of the questions that I see, and uh, it, it's, it's you've dealt with it, I know, and you're going to be dealing with it going forward, I'm sure, at the task force, and everybody's going to be talking about it, because if there's a huge rollout of vaccines in the United States, and 20, 30, 40, 50 million, 100 million, all sorts of numbers are being tossed around, are vac- vaccinated in, uh, you know, by the summer, and the UK has a tremendously successful rollout as far as numbers is concerned. And, and here comes Canada sort of la- lagging behind with a relatively small number of, uh, of, of vaccinations. That is going to be a problem. That is going to be an issue that is going to disturb people. I'm sure that in your meeting somewhere today that was brought up. Well, uh, I mean, let's think about this for a sec. We don't have companies in Canada that make these vaccines. The companies aren't Canadian, and they're not even on Canadian soil. We are going to rely on foreign companies in different countries to produce and send us vaccines. So we're at a disadvantage. Number two disadvantage, we're not, (laughs) we don't have the economic muscle of the United States or the European Union or Britain, right? We don't. I mean, I love this country. I love it to pieces. uh, But like, we just, we, we don't have that economic strength so what happened i mean listen i'm putting politics aside let's just look at what happened we got access to seven different vaccines they were smart about the seven different vaccines because quite frankly the two front runners we've got access to even the four front runners there's a couple that are behind not too far we've got access to so we are going to have access to these vaccines and like I don't, I'm, I was going to say I don't have any insider information. I kind of do, I guess, because I'm sitting on the task force. But, like, it's pretty public. It's pretty clear that we're talking about rolling out programs sooner rather than later. So it's not quite clear, you know, when the U.K. and the U.S.A. are going to start rolling out programs. It looks like it's going to be late December. Like, U.K. might be this week. Uh, U.S.A. might be around Christmas time. But, like, I, I quite frankly, I don't, I don't know how far behind Canada is going to be. Like we have access to this, we bought it. They're they're talking about they're planning for it, I and mean, we've seen it in every major news outlet from senior leaders of the of the national program saying like, get ready. Like we're talking about first quarter, but it's probably going to be January. So uh, that's not too far behind. And given our circumstances, I mean, I I chalk this up as a success. But at the end of the day, we can't say it's a, it's a success because nothing's happened yet. Like we're going to be talking about this throughout in february in march in april and and then we'll 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 determine how good it is retrospectively i think but yeah i I think it's way too soon to pat anyone on the back until we actually start these programs i spoke yesterday with uh, paul lucas the former ceo 16 years uh, president ceo of GlaxoSmithKline, and uh, he challenges what the federal government says very directly and it's on my uh, podcast and uh his, his, his op-ed is readily available. And he said uh, that, you know, the claim that uh, manufacturing for vaccines ended uh, largely in 2000 or 2007, 2011, through that time period, is just, quote, blatantly false. That even in 2009, uh, millions of doses of H1N1 vaccine were produced in Canada, and uh, the vaccines are still produced in this country. Maybe not with the technology that we require um, to produce the vaccines for, for COVID-19. But there's there's a there's a just an unease 
that we may be at the end and this is, you, you know, you've said people need to talk to each other. We need to be able to discuss and ask the questions that are, are relevant. There's, a, there's an unease that we may be sort of the tail wagging the dog. I hope that isn't the case. Um, and uh, I, I hope that we're able to, to be satisfied. But there are a lot of questions being asked. And this just brings us to where what you and I talked about at the beginning. We've said many times there are more questions than answers at this juncture. Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, I think if there's good lines of communication between, you know, senior public health and senior federal leadership, there will be growing number, a growing number of answers. So I, I think people shouldn't be alarmed, just like anything else. This is going to change. It's not like this is some no, static fluid. process. Very fluid, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, this is going to change with time. Like, maybe we'll have this vaccine, then we'll have that vaccine. Maybe the program is going to be running like this, and it'll have to pivot like something else. Like, mm-hmm. like anything else. Like, this is a dynamic situation. I th- like, yeah. And it's the first time the world's done this ever. I mean, I get it. There was the big pandemic in 1918, but, like, they didn't roll out a global public health program at that time with mass vaccinations. Like, come on. I mean, this is... This it's is amazing, really. It's, it really is amazing that it was accomplished, that the vaccine has been uh, accomplished within a year. Oh, it's just oh, stunning. Oh, like, when you take a step back and, like, and we just think about the conversation we're having now about the nuances of a vaccine program, mm-hmm. it's amazing we didn't know this infection existed 12 months ago and now we're talking about well we might be a couple of weeks behind the uk really like really this is pretty amazing all things considered i remember our first conversation and and it was early on in the uh, the first wave and i asked you about vaccines and uh you said something like well normally it takes in the neighborhood of 10 12 15 years to be able to find a you know be able to find a locate or create uh, a dependable and a certified vaccine uh, and here we are yeah we're, we're know, on the doorstep amazing. it really is i don't amazing. know how much time we have left but the story of like the moderna i'll just i can do this in 3 seconds yeah the the uh, the the virus was sequenced uh, as in we got the genetic sequence it was made publicly available very, very early on in the pandemic. I believe it was January. Sometimes and I do have January. 20 seconds. Two days later, Moderna used that to create the vaccine. And then they did all the studies. But it took them two days. That's why with the stunning. technology that we have, it's amazing. It's stunning. Thank God for artificial intelligence. That's all I can say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and the natural stuff, too. Uh, Amy Ayers is an Ontario personal support worker who was inside long-term care facilities during the first wave of COVID, worked with um, seniors and residents of the LTC facilities, and who contracted the virus herself. She also had the draining task of um, knowing and seeing um, residents who she was close to dying in the in the facility and amy has uh, very strong views about what needs to change and um she joins us on the roy green show on the chorus radio network hi amy how are you i'm good how are you great i i thank you for for coming on and getting in touch with me after we we had spoken about uh, the uh, personal support workers and and long-term care facilities so let's begin with uh, with with what the issue is. What is the what is the biggest challenge that you identify as a personal support worker that has not been dealt with that has to be dealt with? So that number one key point is staffing. So staffing has been an ongoing issue um, for many years, 
um, before pandemic. Um, now, going through the pandemic in the first wave, we have um, hit, I want to say, pretty rock bottom with our staffing. Um, it's worse than, than it's ever been. Um, it's a huge issue because without staff, how are we supposed to function and, and make a home run when those yachts are empty, right? Yeah, um, so that's a huge issue for sure. Yeah, for sure. Now, what uh, what happens inside, from your perspective and your experience, what happens inside a long term care facility as an as an outbreak is going on? What what do we need to know? Um, well, it's uh, it's stressful, obviously. Um, it's it's very hard to um, I, I want to say go with not a full staffed um, group and you're dealing with um, an outbreak and residents who are unwell and whatnot um, and trying to give proper care and, and stretching everybody out for that um, is very difficult. Um, I, I, I can't stress um, enough about uh, like all the ones out there right now that are going through um, a second wave right now how important it is to have the full full hands on deck. Um, everybody sees it, they read it, um, and the lack of care and, and how it affects uh, the residents. Um, it's no secret, obviously, right? Um, and, and it's devastating. Um, how can we fix this? Well, we, we definitely need um, our government to pick up some things here and pick up the pace to, to give these long-term care homes the tools they need more so right now than anything um, to be able to successfully work through COVID and outbreaks in their homes. So long-term care is very under, like underfunded. Um, like it, it's, I could go on forever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I hear the stress in your voice and, uh, I picked it up in the email you sent me as well, and I would imagine it has to be, not imagine, it has to be terribly difficult because you, you, you know, when we, uh, when we communicated, I, I know you care very much about the residents who you're interacting with and your other personal support workers are interacting with. And when someone dies, and I know that's happened while you've been working there and you've had to become involved, that has to be extremely, extremely difficult and extremely stressful. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you're, you're looking for, for a better reality for everybody. Mm -hmm. And is it your sense then that, uh, that the government isn't doing enough and uh, or could be doing more? And well, I don't know, maybe your, your association isn't doing as much as they should. I don't know. I'm just asking. Yeah. I want to say, like, definitely there's, there's more that the government can absolutely do um like i said it's no secret that this has been an ongoing issue before pandemic um mm -hmm. as doug ford mentioned you know it's the past uh, uh government officials who you know left this sitting there and, and whatnot and what have you okay well then that's fine why aren't you picking it up and running with it this would be like a trophy for him <laughs> as i want to put it you know if you pick it up and and run with it give us the um, Bill 13, get rid of that 218, give us some more funding. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on on how we can make a long-term care successful um, 
And so let me let me ask you this: what's happening? What's happening as far as hands-on care for residents is concerned? Just from your perspective, you as the as the personal support worker, just you, are you unable to give the kind of attention and kind of um, support that you? feel you should be able to do because you're stretched too thinly is that is that the sense i'm getting here absolutely um myself i know i'm 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 lucky enough i work overnight so i can give a little more hands-on care you know comfort and whatnot it's a little slower pace but from listening to other psws for the days and the evenings working short and having to come in and the stress that they're bringing when they come in knowing that they're going to be short and that everything's going to be like rush, 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 rush. Um, it, it's, it's something that affects the whole morale um, on, on that shift, right? Um, mm-hmm. Not just for staff, but for the residents as well. Um, you know, you can't, you can tell me that they can't sense, you know, the, the rush part of it. And, and they get frustrated too, which doesn't help situations. And yeah, it's, 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 it's realistic. I mean, like, how are you supposed to stretch your yourself out and try to be successful at getting everybody ready in the morning when you know you've got such complex needs for individuals um yeah i know you had rallies in some 20 municipalities on the 15th of october about this um so you went through the first uh, the first um wave of covid and you contracted covid you had it and um and, and now, as you as you approach the second wave, and you go to work every night, and you do what you do, and, and thank you for, for for doing what you do and looking after people who desperately need the help, and you become family, I suppose. I mean, I don't see how you don't become family to to yeah. to so many residents. How are you personally handling it? How are you personally being able to to continue to do what you do when you've already had the experience for the last nine months? Um, well, it's very difficult. <laughs> Um, the reality of it, of it, I guess, dealing with it, um, is, is really non-existent. <laughs> We're still, uh, you know, lurking in a pandemic, like it's still lurking around. So, um, you, you must be, do you worry when you go to work or you, I mean, you have, you have, you have a child, uh, sure. you must have concerns, right? When you go to work. Yeah. Yeah. We, we go to work and we have that weighing on our shoulders, you know, what if we bring it in? Uh, or what happens if we go in and, mm-hmm. you know, we're on outbreak or, you know, it's definitely a huge worry um, and it adds to the stress. Yeah. For sure. So the message clearly is to the government, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a need that's not being met. And right. you feel so strongly that you're willing to identify yourself yeah. and say, here am I, I'm the personal support worker i've been through the first wave mm-hmm. i actually had covid i'm looking after people who need the attention need the need the affection need the care and we're not getting what we need from at cch roop nine i work in the schools and so i'm saddened by the number of very young people struggling with mental health issues we have become less resilient and now the less resilient are raising an even lesser resilient generation. Teachers and educational assistants are not equipped. Okay, let's talk about this with uh, Mark Hennig. Mark is a mental health strategist, TED Talk video, as I said, been watched by um, millions of people. He was the National Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Canadian Mental Health Association, also served as National Spokesperson for the Canada-wide Faces of Mental Illness campaign, and he is the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting. Book and podcast are so-called normal, and we've talked to Mark on this program in the past. Thanks for coming back on, Mark. 
Thanks for having me, Roy. So what I just read, and your observation is going to be far more, I think, detailed and understanding than anything I can come up with, is, is, the, is the mental health and emotional well-being of Canadians being directly affected by this pandemic? Uh, Canadians' mental health and well-being is absolutely being affected. And, you know, I think our concern early on, rightfully so, was for people who were already at risk of mental health problems and illnesses. So that is people who either had a mental health problem or illness before, uh, people who had a family history, you know, people who had other risk factors in place. Uh, and I think that uh, people with those risk factors in place have indeed been negatively impacted. Uh, but perhaps unexpectedly was that people who had no prior risk factors or no prior diagnosis are also increasingly starting to experience a mental illness, especially depression and anxiety, for the very first time. Uh, and I think, you know, people like me who have been through it before, for better or worse, we've developed coping skills out of necessity. Uh, but now there are new people coming into this experience who have never had that opportunity before uh, and are finding out that it's, it's really very difficult, especially in a pandemic environment, to get the help and support that you need. So, Mark, what are some of the indicators, people who don't have an experience with mental health issues or don't knowingly have an issue or an experience with mental health uh, issues, what are the indicators they should be looking for? Well, so now normally, in normal times, if we can ever even remember what those were, uh, we would be looking for significant changes from the baseline. So that means uh, if they uh, are sad, for example, more often than they're not, and they never used to be, and there's no uh, real ex external explanation for that. Now, this is where it gets dicey, of course, because we're living in very abnormal times. So uh, we are seeing increasing rates of depression and anxiety, and even according to a CMHA survey that just came out, one in 10 Canadians have reported uh, suicidal ideation uh, just in the last few months. So is this a normal response to a very abnormal circumstance? Uh, I'm not uh, I'm not sure, actually, what the answer to that is, but I do know uh, that we need to respond and help people who are uh, uh, feeling the these feelings of stress and sadness. And uh, I really like that comment that you made from the person who felt anger and rage, you know, that emotional um, over availability, that emotional live wireness that so many people are experiencing. Uh, we need to tune into that and see if it's really interfering with our life, if it's really getting to a place where we inside personally know that something just isn't right. That's when we know that it might be a condition. I'd like to ask you about kids, um, children and teens. Now, you attempted suicide when you were 15, and I believe the last time you were on with us, you said you'd actually thought about it or tried it earlier than that, maybe at 12 years of age. Um, so what do you look for among children and teens what should parents be looking for yeah so again you know i think it's uh it's easy to think that teenagers uh or that teenage years is just supposed to be a difficult phase you know that it's normal for kids to struggle and to a certain extent it is kids are hardwired for struggle but teenage depression and anxiety and especially suicidality that is not a normal phase that is not something that we should just uh uh, uh pass off as a kid being dramatic uh, it is a kid who's going through a really difficult circumstance uh, in their own mind very often, but also likely in their circumstances around them, too, in their environment. And they haven't yet developed the coping mechanisms, effective coping mechanisms to deal with that. What I experienced was because I didn't have those coping mechanisms, I assumed that those coping mechanisms didn't exist. Because, you know, C.S. Lewis said that we're the center, everybody is the center of their own universe. They don't realize that there's a universe outside of your own head. Uh, so whatever skills you have in your limited 
12 or 15 or 17 years on earth, that's all you think there is. So I think parents and loved ones need to look for, again, these significant changes from baseline, uh, but also clues uh, or, or what we call bids uh, for for uh, others to have a conversation, you know, if they're joking about suicide, if they're saying that they'd be better off dead or better off gone, or that nobody would ever miss them if they're gone. These are all red flags that when I hear those things, it uh, rather than um, make me say, oh, don't say things like that. It makes me say, tell me more about that. That's what you want to do. You want to know more about what that kid is thinking. So that way you can get more information. Are kids being hurt right now, Mark, just with their lack of access to their normal lives uh, and their friends and uncertainty about when I can go to school, what I can do with my friends, what I'm going to be able to do as a kid that I was accustomed to do, again, from that relatively uh, brief period on this planet and a relatively short period of, to build up um, some life experience? Are they being hurt now? You know, I think kids are far more resilient uh, than we often give them credit for. Um, I, I think that kids adapt very quickly uh, to to seemingly abnormal circumstances. You know, there's adults now who are still clinging to the old way, the old normal that was, what, 10 months ago now. At some point, you just have to get used to it and move on. And I think for the most part, kids largely have. You know, they've all, all of them are digital natives already. They already live online. They've never known a world without Facebook uh, or without, without their cell phone. So I think in some ways it was much easier for kids to maintain contact, uh, social connection uh, with their friends and colleagues. Uh, and classmates, rather, um, and especially with, with uh, the hybrid transition in many schools of incorporating online learning as well. So, you know, I think like everybody else, it was a shock at first, especially not being able to play organized sports, for example, or be able to go to their friends' houses. Um, but I think that young people have adapted uh, much more readily than adults have. Okay, so let me just take that thought one step further and turn it back to the adults. Do, do most people begin to feel better as they become acclimatized to the new normal? I think that that, that would generally be true. Now, where I would be concerned is, if, is in those cases of clinging, when people are resisting. And, and I see this in, uh, when working as a clinician, and I saw it in myself as well. It's the clinging to what you want uh, your life to be that really causes the most friction. It's not always the symptoms themselves of the illness, of the depression, uh, but rather it's the resistance that causes the friction inside you. It's, it, that's what causes the anger and the irritation and the sadness and the longing for things that you perceive to have lost. We call that a fixed mindset when you're not able to flex and be resilient. Rather, we need to be practicing a growth mindset where we take this as a learning opportunity, where we take this as it just is what it is and we need to accept it and, and, uh, and only then can we really start to grow and change and get comfortable into it. When we let that process happen, when we trust the process, uh, our brain, our mind is designed to get us through trauma, through difficult situations, uh, and we need to trust ourselves to be able to do that. Mark, before we take the break, uh, your book is uh, titled, and the podcast, So-Called Normal. I find that intriguing. Explain, please. Well, you know, I think I've spent most of my life uh, wishing that I was normal, you know, looking at everybody else around me uh, and saying, why can't I just be like them? Why do I have to live with uh, these thoughts of depression and this constant anxious energy and uh, these thoughts of suicide that, that plagued me for so much of my life. You know, why can't I just be like everybody else? 
And then the more that I started to talk to people, both as an advocate and hearing people's stories just through sharing my own, and then through the podcasts and, and my public work, uh, I started to realize, oh, nobody knows what they're doing. We're all just figuring this out as we go. And there's no such thing as normal. So, you know, I, I think that really the book, uh, initially the podcast and now the book that'll be out in January, has really about, been about my journey in exploring that, in realizing that there isn't some objective sense of perfection out there, uh, that we're all just building our own version of normal. Please hold on. Uh, Mark Hennick is, uh, is my guest. He's the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting. His uh, TED Talk video of uh, attempting suicide and being saved at 15 years of age by a stranger, again, is one of the most watched videos in the world with several million views. Let's start with Beth, who is in London, Ontario. Hi, Beth. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, pleasure. Um. I'll try to make this as brief as I can. So I'm I'm a single parent who has a 13-year-old son who seems to be having um, problems coping and has made certain um, suicidal threats recently. So we have visited um, a youth service, and um, they more so wanted to get me uh, in for a program for the tools and that, but... Uh, be able to use, but I'm I'm um, kind of surprised that they didn't have any suggestions or any direction for me to go um, for my son to to um, get him the help that he needs. Mark, Beth, thank you so much for sharing this experience. You know, I don't think it's uncommon at all. Uh, very often, when people reach out for help, especially parents, they find out that. Uh, the hand that reaches back isn't always the one that they were expecting. Sometimes it's no hand at all. Um, so I'm sorry to hear that you feel that you haven't gotten the support for your son. What I would suggest uh, is that, uh, A, he needs to be connected with a counselor, I think. If he's expressing any kind of suicidal ideation at all, um, first of all, lots of people, even young people, uh, think about, talk about, uh, and otherwise express that kind of ideation. It doesn't necessarily mean he's immediately at risk of it. It means that he's exploring it, though, and that needs to be, that needs to be addressed. So I would suggest uh, uh, if your health coverage provides for it, uh, to get him uh, into therapy as quickly as possible. Cognitive behavioral therapy is probably his best bet. Uh, and with a, a child psychologist or a, social wor- a clinical social worker who has experience with young people. Um, if that's not an option, you can talk to your doctor about what kind of outpatient programs are available, either through the, the local hospital or through your local branch of the Canadian Mental Health Association. I think that he does need direct service. He needs somebody to talk to who's not his parent. Um, on the same hand, I think it would be good for you to pursue some of these avenues as well to learn how you can better support him because... Even though, you know, you, you guys probably uh, argue occasionally, as many parents and teenagers do, uh, you're still probably the person that he loves and is connected with the most, uh, even if he may or may not admit it. So uh, you're probably still in a great position to help him, and I think you could benefit from those, uh, those supports as well. Okay, I totally agree. I did um, say that I agree to go. I do want to go. Um, anything that helps me, I realize, will help him as well and um yeah i will get him into to see a, a professional as well i just wondered why you know they hadn't um said anything about getting scary him into, isn't it uh, yeah. yeah you know it's really uh, scary isn't it? 
that raises yeah. another point, Beth, that often the uh, medical side of the system, uh, it's not that they don't necessarily know about the other side of the system, that is the counseling side and the social support side, but it's not their experience, it's not what they're most experienced to do, right? You don't go to med school to learn how to do counseling or to learn how to work with social service, uh, you know, various uh, uh, supports uh, within uh, the social setting. So they just often don't know what's available, to be perfectly honest. So that's why I think it's good to reach out to somebody who does uh, specifically community organizations like like the CMHA, and they're going to take those concerns more seriously. All right. That's good. Good luck with you, son. Okay. It's scary. It's scary for a parent. Thanks. Thank you very much. You take care. Beth in London, Ontario. So uh, we took a little longer with the call than we normally would, but, you know, the mom of a 13-year-old is talking suicide is serious. So we have less than a minute here. Mark, um, were your parents aware? And what, what's, the, what's the fundamental takeaway in 30 seconds? I'm sorry, that's all I have. What's the fundamental takeaway take from this segment today? Well, you know, I think that uh, I first started struggling with suicidality as young as about 10 years old. Uh, I first expressed it at about 12 years old. When I did, the nurse wrote on my uh, medical record when she told my mother that my mother didn't see it coming. My mother said that Mark is a good boy. We didn't expect this. So I think that people learn how to hide these feelings, especially young people. So you have to learn how to ask the right questions and, and do so fearlessly. Don't be afraid to tell people that you love them, that you care about them, that you support them, and that you have their back. I think that's the most important thing to remember. Canadians are worried the vaccine, yeah, that one, will not come fast enough to stop the coronavirus surge. And this is news from Ipsos Public Affairs for Global News. Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, the author of the best book in Canada that you need to have next about what's coming next. Daryl, thank you for the for the time. So uh, what I have here is 74% of Canadians believe that to be the case, that the vaccine won't come fast enough to stop the coronavirus surge. That's a big number. Yeah, it is a big number, and it also shows that people don't think that there's going to be a one-stop solution to uh, to what's going on right now. Uh, so uh, the, the shutdowns and everything else that are going on across the country are also seen as really necessary by a lot of people. Uh, so the, are they motivated then, if, if I'm understanding correctly, they're motivated by the growing increase in COVID cases in this country, and at the moment it's around 6,000 daily, which is almost double of a month ago, is that the determining factor mainly for the folks to feel as they do? Yeah, exactly. So the way people look at, uh, say, for example, uh, uh, the station that you're on today reporting the, uh, the daily case numbers, uh, they look at that almost like an emergency broadcast. And it determines whether or not you're going to be able to leave your house to do something today, whether your kids are going to be able to go back to school, whether or not you feel that you'll uh, you'll be able to go back to work. So they, they're they looking at that, particularly the trend in those numbers, and that's, by that I mean the public is looking at the trend in those numbers to determine whether or not we're making progress. And at the moment, it does not feel like we're making progress to them. Now, 66% say they're satisfied with the progress the federal government is making, but 79% say Canada could be doing more to get a vaccine sooner. That's what we heard yesterday from former GlaxoSmithKline CEO Paul Lucas. That 79% number is, I mean, 66 is probably impressive to the government, but that 79%, if I were Mr. Trudeau, that would worry me. Yeah, and it is a contradiction. And the reason it's a contradiction is the 66% is hope. People really don't know what the government's done to secure vaccines. They're just learning about that right now. Mm -hmm. And they're hoping that they're doing the right thing. But whatever can be done, 
they want the government to be doing. So that's how those two numbers come together. And the problem that we're going to get into, Roy, is if this drags on for a period of time, and particularly if we see as, as countries that are complementary to what we believe the Canadian capability is, uh, start getting vaccines and they're getting them faster. And, you know, I'm not just talking about symbolic numbers of vaccines to say something is going on, but actually large percentages of the population are getting it. If countries get ahead of us, then you're going to start to see that 66 drop. Yes, and some of the projections that we're hearing from countries like uh, the United States and the UK is that they will be uh, have vaccinated many millions of people, many millions of their residents, before we even sniff a vaccine in Canada, potentially. And that's the, that's where we're getting into this. Uh, you know, the, the start of the vaccine process is being more of a, like a communications exercise. But when you start seeing those those comparative numbers, managing it like it's a communications exercise is something that could really blow up in the government's face. Mm-hmm. Is there a regional effect at, in, at play here, Daryl? There is a bit, but it tends to follow the political map. So people in places like Ontario, uh, Quebec, Atlantic Canada tend to have a more supportive view of what the government is doing. And then people in Western Canada, with the exception of British Columbia, tend to have a less supportive view of what the government's doing, particularly people in the province of Alberta. So it it tends to follow the partisan political map. What about gender? Yeah, women, um, uh, when it comes to every aspect of how the government's performing and all the rest of it, there's really no significant gender gender difference. The real gender difference is on whether or not people actually uh, will want to participate in getting a vaccine and whether or not uh, they think that uh, uh, vaccines will be enough to stop what's, uh, what's happening with the spread of COVID. And women on that are way more pessimistic and much less likely to get a vaccine in the immediate term. So we're really heading into the uh, depths of winter. And I, I try to cheer people up by telling them when they're a little grumpy or a little growly or a little down. Now I tell them, look, by the 22nd of December, the days are going to start getting longer. I'm, I'm grasping, <laughs> you know, I'm grasping for straws here. Um, and, and it does make people feel just a, a tiny bit better. Oh yeah, the days aren't going to get longer. But, um, once we get into the depths, the real depths of winter, the cold weather, the snow, the blowing and all that stuff that we're so familiar with, does that uh, have the potential to become an additional factor to sway public opinion or flip public opinion? Or am yeah, I reaching? Something that you've been tweeting a lot about over the last while is the mental health aspects of this, Roy. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are really feeling the pressure and they're getting quite frayed. And uh, even though the resolve is there to continue to do things like, for example, cancel their Christmas holidays or change the way that they're going to celebrate the holiday season. There's no joy in any of this. It's not like people are out there feeling like we're fighting something together. They're really feeling oppressed by what they're going through. And we're in a real, uh, I would describe it as almost like a twilight period here. I'm not sure if the twilight is just before the dawn or the twilight is before a longer, darker night. I mean, if we get a situation in which, for example, we start getting some bad news about vaccines, say there's side effects or um, uh, there's difficulties with, uh, with, with the rollout, it's really starting to fray now in terms of people's nerves. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.